Lukowitz. Welcome back to another great episode of Dan on Top. I'm your host, Dan Lukowitz, and today we have the pleasure and privilege of joining us today on this episode, Michael Brady, the Executive Vice President of Madison Exchange. Michael, how you doing? Good, good. How are you doing today? Doing great. Really appreciate you taking the time to join us and provide some tremendous value to our viewers. Yeah, no, I'm happy to be here. I love uh, talking about all things real estate and especially 1031 exchanges. Awesome. So we've got a lot to talk about. This is a hot topic, something I'm really passionate about and interested in, and so are our viewers. But before we get into the grits of, of exactly what you do and, 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 and all of that greatness, I want to know about who you are. So tell our viewers, who is Michael Brady? Yeah, so uh, first of all, I'm a born and uh, nearly raised Long Island New Yorker. Uh, I've been here my entire life, except for a brief stint up at Binghamton University in upstate New York. I'm a practicing attorney. I've been practicing for, I think it's about 27 years now, predominantly doing what I call dirt law, which is real estate <laughs> transactions, as well as you know some corporate transactions, a little bit of litigation, enough really to know that I didn't like litigation. And, uh, and I've been doing qualified intermediary work since 2005, where we've done or I've done... Uh, several thousand or overseen several thousand exchanges and have helped clients defer over a billion dollars in taxation. So, uh, and that's what I've been doing ever since. And, um, you know, besides that, I'm an, <laughs> I'm an avid runner, exercise uh, fanatic, and I love to read. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we won't hold the fact that you're born and raised in Long Island against you. Okay. We'll focus on on the 1031 aspects and, and all the real estate stuff for today's show. So listen, let's jump right into it. Very interesting times that we're living in. A lot of potential changes uh, coming up uh, politically uh, as it pertains to real estate. I want you to talk to us about your opinion uh, about the potential rumors on tax reform with uh, capital gains turning into ordinary income tax, tax rate hikes, uh, as well as the potential elimination of the 1031 exchange. Yeah, so we got some news yesterday, I think, as part of um, President Biden's uh, uh, infrastructure package includes increasing capital gains tax rates, includes raising you know income tax rates on higher income earners, and also calls for a limita- limitation on 1031 exchanges to $500,000 of gain. Uh, which is a pretty significant restriction, and as you know, many of our clients defer well over a million dollars a gain, five hundred thousand dollars. We do have a lot of, you know, people that that are in that boat, but a lot of our clients defer quite more than that. And as real yeah. estate values have increased, you know, it's not unusual for somebody to have well over five hundred thousand dollars a gain. So, you know, it's challenging times. It's not the first time that ten thirty one has kind of been on the so called proverbial chopping block. Um, it's important to note that 1031 exchanges have been part of the tax code since the 1920s. It's just over 100 years old since we've had the concept of, it wasn't 1031 back then, but the concept of tax deferred exchanges for real estate. So this is not like some recent loophole that was added to the tax code. This is something that's been part and parcel of our tax code pretty much almost as long as we've had taxes, right? Taxes were started during the Civil War. So, you know, I guess that's uh, 1920, probably 40 or 50 years before that. Um, So, you know, we've seen, as I said, we've been on the chopping block before. Um, We've they've talked about cutting Section 1031 back to a million dollars a gain. Uh, as early as President Obama's, I think, last two budgets called for that. The Tax Cut and Jobs Act, which was passed by the Republicans in 2017, 
while they were having discussions about that, there was discussions about completely eliminating 1031 exchanges altogether. Um, that ultimately uh, did not happen. And what happened instead was they eliminated 1031 exchanges for personal property items. So things like equipment and machinery and aircraft, which we used to do exchanges of, we can no longer do. Uh, so again, this is not the first time this has come up. Um, I tend to be sure. I mean, it's something that's we're watching very carefully. But you know, we know, for instance, well, you know, for for facts that that the the Democratic majority in the Senate and the House is pretty thin, um, and this was something that I guess it would probably try to pass under reconciliation rather than have to subject it to the filibuster, where I don't think it would pass at all. Um, but, you know, they still have to convince some of the more moderate Democrats like uh, Manchin and Cinema to kind of go along with that. And I think there are other congressmen and, and senators uh, and it's people, uh, you know, Congress people, I should say, um, you know, who are real estate investors who uh, represent districts that um, like here in New York that you Real estate is a big part of the economy, like Chuck Schumer, sure. who many people brand as a firebrand liberal. Um, you know, listen, I live here. You know, he's he's a moderate at best, um, and you know he's he has you know he's been somewhat sympathetic to business interests in the past, and so I think you know the tax rates. I think we're going to see go up. I don't know what the numbers are going to be, but I am hopeful that 1031 will allow be allowed to remain as is and allow tax you know taxpayers to continue to defer their gains and invest and improve uh, real estate projects. You know we have some good statistics that show that eliminating 1031 exchanges would hurt rather than help the economy because it cuts things out like. Um, you know, most of our clients, when they buy a property, the first thing they do is they rehab it. So if they're not rehabbing property or buying property to rehab, then those properties are going to sit idle and there'll be less construction dollars in the economy, less dollars for uh, state and local governments who, you know, charge transfer taxes and mortgage taxes and recording fees and, all, you know, all that stuff, as well as permitting fees for construction, real estate broker commissions. Uh, yeah. uh, title insurance premiums, you know, so all the kind of cycles through the economy. So we, you know, as an industry, have been actively lobbying um, Congress to not touch 1031. Uh, we have a bunch of great industry partners like the National Association of Realtors and the Real Estate Roundtable. And so, you know, we're hopeful that we'll be able to uh, make Congress see the light and, and act uh, appropriately. Yeah, listen, I absolutely hope that you're right. No question about it. There is a huge trickle-down effect, and the ramifications would be would be wide-reaching. So, you know, I know that, that none of us have a crystal ball, but what would you say is the likelihood of either the 1031 going away or, or a major change? Because, you know, myself personally, I just brokered a transaction yesterday. It was part of a $28 million 1031 where the client actually would have deferred millions of dollars, and without the 1031, I don't think that transaction would have occurred. Yeah. And so it's hard to put numbers on it. And, you know, uh, and I should start off by saying that I've been kind of wrong <laughs> a good chunk of uh, the way here. You know, I did not think that the Democrats were going to uh, take the Senate, number one. Uh, I wasn't so sure that President Biden was going to be elected, despite the numbers. I thought we might see a repeat of 2016 where we all kind of caught off guard. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been Ryan. I, and lastly, I didn't think that the Democrats were going to win one seat in the uh, Georgia Senate seat, never mind two. So, uh, so take everything I say with a grain of salt. But I'm confident that there's a 
better than average chance that 1031 will survive um, intact. And I think maybe the compromise position, which I still don't think is great, is maybe they'll raise that limit from $500,000 to a more reasonable number. But I'm, I'm hopeful that they just kind of leave it as is. Sure. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. So let's walk it back a little bit, Michael. Tell our viewers exactly, you know, maybe some of the specifics of a 1031, the guidelines, the identification, uh, you know, period. Just give us a general 30,000 foot overview on what a 1031 exchange is. Yeah, so it's really important to note that when you sell investment real estate, that you have to pay taxes, right? So uh, I think anybody knows that if you sell something at a profit, you pay taxes on the profit. And so the tax rates historically or have recently been fairly low, but they're still significant. So if you are selling in an income tax, a state income tax jurisdiction like California, New York, um, you know, pretty much most of the Northeast, um, you're going to have to pay state income taxes on your capital gain as well as the federal capital gain rate. And altogether, that could add up to one third or more of your profit. And so that means, you know, if you're selling for $3 million, you're taking a million dollars and you're paying taxes. That only leaves you with $2 million to reinvest. So by doing a 1031 exchange, you get to reinvest not just the $2 million after tax dollars, you get to reinvest $3 million, which if you leverage it at 75% LTV, gives you a great multiple, um, you know, to invest over what you would have done if you had paid taxes. So you can do that by basically exchanging one property uh, and they have to be uh, real property, real estate that's held for productive use in a trade business or for investment for a like kind property held for productive use in a trade business or for investment. So this is, you know, for tax purposes, every single 1031 exchange is a swap transaction. It's two parties trading their properties uh, with each other. No money is changing hands and therefore there's no money available to pay taxes. At least that's the concept under 1031. So that's unusual where that actually happens. So they created something called a qualified intermediary, which is what we do, our company, um, that basically uh, exchanges with the taxpayer and allows them to sell and buy from other people. So for tax purposes, what happens is they give us their property. We take it and then we sell it, take the proceeds from that sale and buy a property from somebody else to give that property back to our client in exchange for the one they gave us. Now, that's a really cumbersome transaction, right? If you think about it, two sets mm -hmm. of deeds on each side of the transaction, that's two sets of recording fees, two sets of title insurance premiums, potentially, which our title insurance company, we're, we're affiliated with the title insurance company, you know, they would love that. Um, <laughs> but Congress, you know, in a rare act of generosity, they said that that was unnecessary, that will have basically what's a legal fiction, that this is a swap from one party to the other. But what will happen is it's sufficient if we as the QI take assignment of the contract and uh, the money from the sale flows through us to the purchase. And that's basically how it works. So they sell, money comes to us, they have, a, and we can talk about the deadlines, 45 days to identify their replacement property, up to 180 days to close on it. When they find a replacement property to buy, they will enter into contract directly we then take assignment of that contract and at the closing we basically fund the acquisition with the money from their sale now what's the most important recommendation that you would make to someone who's considering doing a 1031 exchange so 
really with any real estate transaction, I recommend this. And I have closed a bunch of real estate transactions as an attorney, you know, prior to doing 1031 exchanges or prior, to, I should say, to being a qualified intermediary. The number one recommendation I make is you really need to talk to your accountant early in the yes. process. I can't tell you how many times, you know, I do presentations for attorneys, accountants and real estate brokers and, and investors. And you know, I always say this and, and I say to the accountants in my audience, you know, how often do your clients actually seek you out before they sell a property? And I can tell you, it's very rare that a hand goes up. Usually I get some chuckles and usually I get a lot of frowns and sometimes I get a lot of dirty looks um, <laughs> from the accountants because, you know, I don't know why people won't talk to their accountants about these things. And these are tax decisions. You want to make sure uh, that your accountant is on board and you want to make sure it makes sense to do a 1031 exchange. You know, short of that, the next thing that you absolutely have to do is you have to get us or, you know, a qualified intermediary involved before you close on either property. Right. Um, so that's the second most important recommendation because it needs to be set up before you go to closing. Now, Michael, can the investor purchase the new property before they sell the old property? Yeah, so you can do something that's called a reverse exchange. And you, what you cannot do, however, is own both properties at the same time. So technically, you can purchase it. Um, but what has to happen is you have to park the title with an affiliate of your qualified intermediary. Okay, so what will happen is we will basically the taxpayer is going to lend us money. We buy the property. We hold it until the taxpayer sells their property. And then essentially, for tax purposes, they're going to use their sale proceeds to buy the property from us. And the way that's done is the money from the sale comes to us. We then are basically re repaying the money that the taxpayer loaned to us to buy their property. Now, what happens with any income from the new property in that intermediary period? Yeah, and that, that's a really great question. So the way we structure it is that basically the taxpayer is leasing the property from us during that exchange period while we hold title to it. And so they can then earn the income as kind of the, the tenant of the property and they can sublease it to, you know, a third party or, you know, uh, third parties if it's a multi-tenanted property. So the income will still go to them. Now, can a 1031 exchange work on a syndication deal? Syndication is really tricky with 1031 exchanges, and we do get a lot of questions on that. You know, um, it's, you know, I always say a 1031 buyer is the best buyer that you can have if either as, or client if you're a real estate broker. But if you're a seller looking for a buyer, the 1031 buyer has the, many of the things that you want, right? Number one, they have cash. Yeah which is cash is king, especially in this market. Number two, uh, they're motivated, right? They're motivated by those tax savings. If they don't buy a property, they're going to pay up to a third of their profit in taxes. And number three, they have time constraints. And so the deadlines I mentioned, 45 days to identify, 180 days to close, they have to move. So they're not out there wasting your time as a broker looking at 100 properties and you know just deciding, well, maybe they don't want to do anything. No, they're, they're, they're actively engaged. They have incentive and they want to get to a closing. So um, they are attractive to syndicators. The problem, however, is your typical syndication deal is set up as a partnership. Basically, you typically will have a limited liability company where the syndicator will operate as the general partner and the investors uh, will be the limited partners. They'll all be members in the LLC. 
Um, the problem with that is a 1031 investor has to buy real property. They cannot buy an interest in a partnership. Mm -hmm. So they actually need typically to have a deeded interest in the property. And the way we typically will accomplish that is having them be a tenant and common owner in the property. Um, that creates problems for the syndicator in some ways, but you know, you can still have your syndicated entity where you have all of your other investors and basically the 1031 investor will come in separately in their own entity and buy together with the syndicated entity. Now, the problems that you have there are that the syndicator can't do with the 1031 investor what they can do within the syndicated entity. And so, you know, the 1031 investor has to receive a, a proportionate share of the profits in accordance with the amount they invested. So if they put a quarter of the cash into the deal, they have to get a, a quarter of the profits. Um, you know, they have um, basically some veto power over the sale of the property because in the tick situation, tenant in common, um, under a revenue procedure from the IRS, they look to see that the investor um, you know, ha maintain some power, some control over many of the decisions which have to be unanimous. And so it's not the most attractive structure for a syndicate, but it may be, you know, you have your your investors set up for the bulk of the investment and maybe you just need that extra quarter of the cash um, for your capital stack. And so maybe you'll be willing to bring them in. You know, if you have somebody coming in with a million dollars on a $5 million project, you may be willing to make that exception for the syndicate for that entity. Um, whereas if somebody's coming in with 50 grand on that project, you're probably not gonna accommodate them. Um, and, and we've seen that work. We've seen people do that. And there's some ways you can go around, you know, uh, some of the, the other obstacles that we talked about. Wow. Well, Michael, thank you so much. You've really done a great job to jam-pack this episode with value. So we really appreciate you spending the day with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. And uh, would uh, love to answer any questions that your, your audience has. I'm always available. So by all means, reach out to Michael Brady if you have any questions regarding 1031 Exchange. I'm Dan Lukowitz. This has been another great episode of Dan on Top, and I'm looking forward to seeing you soon.